Hello, beautiful people. We've got more Patreon patrons to thank. Thank you, Heather Hurley. Heather is a true fan of many quality podcasts, shows, and people, and I'm so happy she became a patron of this show. Also, thank you, Hannah Hessel Ratner, Dramaturg, Welder, Mama, and Wonder Woman. There's really not much more to say. And thank you, Charlene V. Smith, Shakespeare scholar, artistic director, and Nathaniel Plimpton III, haircut haver. You're all amazing. Thank you, Heather, Hannah, and Charlene. Do you want to get thanked on the air? Just go to patreon.com slash originalcastpod and pledge everlasting love to the original cast. There are three levels of patronage, all with their own rewards, but they all give you access to our patrons-only podcast, The Original Cast at the Movies. You can listen to the pilot episode of The Original Cast at the Movies about Moulin Rouge a few episodes back in this feed. The January episode, the first patrons-only episode, will have Helen Hayes Award winners Tracy Lynn Oliveira and Holly Twyford talking about the 1971 classic Willy Wonka and the chocolate factory so head over to patreon.com slash original cast pod to become a patron and listen to the original cast at the movies all right here's the show whenever my world falls apart i never lose hope or lose heart whatever the form of the storm that may brew not with you to lean on darlings you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. All right, we're back. It's a week later, probably. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk now about The Wild Party. Again. Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still And she danced twice a day in the vaudeville Gray eyes, lips like coals aglow was a tinted mask of snow they open this is really funny to me mm-hmm. they open exactly the same way mm-hmm. but they don't mm-hmm. because even down to like the tiny little thing they pronounce vaudeville differently mm-hmm. i don't know what do you think which one scans better I mean, well, officially the word is pronounced vaudeville. Yeah, yeah. I think, so, I, think I think the music suits like the way the the composer yes. puts it to music. They they yes. score it to to suit. But I'm and saying again, and again, well, I think it's interesting because one of the things that the Lacusa one starts off with is that you are immediately immersed in the world of vaudeville, and that the first three yes. scenes are staged like vaudeville acts. Yes. Um, so this is one act. This musical. Yes. No intermission. I believe, yeah. Broken down into five parts, mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting because the poem is in four. But you know. <laughs> though I guess I think actually now that I'm looking at it, part five is kind of a coda. Yeah. Because yeah, everybody's yeah. It's it's just finale. Everybody's dead. Okay, yeah. good. Or the people who die are dead. Um, yeah. So here we have we're on Broadway with uh, with Michael John Lacusa. Well, and here's this is one of the things that I find so interesting about this project. And when I say interesting, I mean like. The idea that you are going to take a new musical that's original, I mean, not so much in that it's adapted based on like, you know, this obscured 1920s poem, but it's not based like now when I think you hear about musicals going to Broadway direct, they're like based on like some sort of commercial property right. that has like name recognition. Um, and this did not. And this musical debuted on Broadway without an out of town tryout. It was affiliated, well, it was produced by the Public yeah, Theater, so they opened who the has public. an off-Broadway space, but they chose not to produce it off-Broadway ahead of time, and they just took it directly to Broadway. Um, so you said one of the things that fascinated you about these shows was yes. the story behind them, how they both came yes. together. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? 
Um, well, I think the idea of, at the time, the idea that here are two new musicals based on the same source material with the same title that are opening within weeks of each other yeah. in the same New York theater season. At the time, that had not happened at all. Um, and I and I said this a little bit in the last ep- in the last conversation that we had, but um, when you are adapting previously, when you are adapting from a source, you are usually working with an estate. So the idea that these, but that did not happen here because this poem was in the public domain. So the idea that there are these two musicals being adapted independently, developed individually, and developing a musical is a very intense and arduous process. So the fact that both of these were happening were ready and could be debuted within weeks is like major planets aligning. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just like, it's, it's completely, it's completely insane. There's no precedent for it. I, I've never heard of anything happening like this before. And I don't think anybody will hear about anything like this happening again. And I, I, mean, I can't imagine this ever happening again. No. I, I can't like, it, it's funny to read. There is an article you can read. I don't know if it's a New York times or a playbill article mm-hmm. where they interview Everybody, both shows, while this version's at the public. So they are actually playing at the same time. Yes, I did read this. And they and were like, oh, we're not like, we're not paying attention to the other one. They're super bitchy. They're, they're super <laughs> bitchy. It's great. George C. Wolf, especially, has a great quote. Was like, like, do I wish the other one wasn't happening? Yes, but whatever. Yeah. Like, but we're like, dealing I'm with too it. focused right? on mine. <laughs> we're too focused to really care about this other thing that's happening. And like, also because it's like the public in the Manhattan Theater Club. Too. Right. It's like too... Two, like, stalwarts of New York off-Broadway producing these things that are happening at the same time. And it also makes me wonder, I'm like, oh, was there kind of, like, an arms race to get one ready ahead of time? And well, apparently, it kind of seems like there was. That apparently we- this one was ready a year yeah. early. Mm-hmm. And then George C. Wolfe decided it needed more work. And, mm-hmm. and then, so then they pushed it back a couple months and then they couldn't get a slot. Yeah. So they had to push it back again. And that's how you ended up with these things running off-Broadway simultaneously. Now, the yeah. Broadway production opened... Like sure. I think I b- believe that it started previews like two days after the Off Broadway one closed. It oh yeah, it officially opened on April thirteenth, mm-hmm. which is four days after yeah. the Off Broadway production right. closed. So they were not running the Broadway and Off Broadway versions were not ever actually open at the same time, mm-hmm. which but is just super barely. unfortunate. But barely, barely. I have to also imagine that the folks at the Lacusa were super excited. <laughs> <laughs> the other yeah. one didn't well, that they well, because they were not running at the same time. Also, discussions of you know they had commercial producers attached to the Manhattan Theater Club one. Um, right, Jeff McCollum, Kevin McCollum, and Jeffrey Sellers, who were best known for Rent and Avenue Q, and um, now Jeffrey Sellers with Hamilton, Jeffrey Seller with Hamilton, um, that they were attached to that and were going to potentially transfer it if it was a hit, which it was not. Right. Um. So which left Black Hughes a wild party to like. How amazing would that have been? Yeah. To have well, two also, wild parties playing on Broadway, and they have the, the same, same title, and like, how would you? I was, I'm also very surprised that they chose the not Wilder to. Party. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was one thing. Well, there was, you know, that they didn't choose to like have some sort of qualifier, like George Wolf, George C. Wolf's wild party. I think or, if like, they'd Andrew opened the wild party, well, I think, I if think they would have had yeah, to if they'd ha- if they'd opened th- that. This is actually right when that sort of thing's happening where mm-hmm. people are having like which is now ubiquitous that you see so and so's whatever the Ars Nova production of The Great Comet there you yes. go exactly good example <laughs> the um I think if Lippas had transferred they would have had to say mm-hmm. the Andrew, or the Manhattan Theater Club production exactly. of or something they would have had to have some kind of qualifier the artwork for the two could not be any more different could if it not tried. be more different the the Lacusa is 
let's say grotesque mm-hmm. at at the at the best. It's a neat, but it's a good icon, you know. It's a good icon, and I also think that it's more indicative of what they were trying to go after mm-hmm. with this musical, which I think is again trying to immerse you more in the era. And finding good photographs of the off-Broadway production is super difficult it's because all hard. the promo photos are these like scratched up fake tin type yeah. things. And it's, <laughs> it's a vibe. Really, I, again, like they had a, I also wonder if there was this sense of like, they had to be. We have to wildly Because you'd never mix yeah. these albums up. Never. If I sent you to get one of the, like if I said, go to the store mm-hmm. and buy the off-Broadway or the Broadway version, I could very easily describe the covers of the CDs for mm-hmm. you. And you would go, you would never mix them up. No. Um, okay, so that's the simultaneous production aspect of it. Yes. So and let's talk about. Let's talk about this one. Michael John Lacusa and George C. Wolfe. And you said something interesting last time that now I'm going to have to leave in. Uh, <laughs> about about George C., the George C. Wolfe of it all. Yeah. And your feelings on that. Yeah, for- well, you know, I was, when I was re-listening to this in preparation for this. There was one of the things that I noticed. And I, I think at the time when I was 15, I didn't really have a sophisticated understanding of the artists that were involved in this. Um, and as I am now... I kind of hope not, frankly. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, now as somebody who... It's my job to know these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and having amassed, you know, half a lifetime of knowledge, of very specific knowledge that is only useful for my <laughs> for my career. Um <laughs> You know, George C. Wolfe is an artist who, whose like entire body of work lives at this intersection of entertainment and discomfort. Um, hmm. And he is also somebody who repeatedly, I think, is interested in the exploration of racial identity and what happens when race and culture and politics collide. And I understand why he was drawn to this poem, and I understand also i think that i think that the lacusa version of the wild party delves way more into the complexities of race i don't think it does this completely and i don't think it does it um as thoroughly as it could but it at least like addresses it and starts like investigating it but i don't think it fully interrogates it it's i mean his his career on Broadway, in any event, started in 92 with Jelly's Last Jam, uh, which mm-hmm. is a great musical, and then moves into Angels in America, Twilight Los Angeles. I mean, bring into noise, bring into funk. Yeah. There is a... He was the artistic director of the public for a Yeah, for a long, long time. time. Yes. Top, top Dog Underdog, Take Me Out, Carolina Change. I mean, these are shows you know, and these are shows with a point of view. Yes. He does shows with a very distinctive point of view. Absolutely. Also, Elaine Stritch at Liberty. Oh, my. Which, gosh, that, <laughs> that must have been fun. Um and he has a ver- his his production of the Iceman Cometh is coming to Broadway next year. Mm-hmm. Um, is very successful, but like you say, he is a director and often co book writer on his projects. Yes. Um, with with a I don't know if a mission's the right word, but with a point of view, he mm-hmm. has something he's going to get across in yeah. his in his work. He's got stuff he's interested in, um, and he is going to communicate it. Mm-hmm. And I, I do kind of. I do wonder how much his his influence cuz I also know that Vanessa Williams was supposed to play yes, Queenie originally which is fascinating to me. And then got pregnant um, and had to drop out and is replaced by Tony Collette and, and is yeah. One of the reasons why that is such a fascinating casting choice to me and it wonder and it makes me wonder how one would experience the music how how one would experience the musical is that there's a repeated sort of like I guess like theme in the or like motif in the play of Queenie's of Queenie's skin 
and Queenie's mm-hmm. whiteness. Um, there's a lot of talk of her like mask of snow. And then at the end of the musical, the big gesture is that she takes off her makeup. And like that is her big reckoning that now she is going to like live her true self. Um, and that she is going to live in the, you know, like without the sort of like various masks that one applies to, right. you know, survive. Um, and that is way more interesting to me when you have a, when you have a black woman mm-hmm. playing that role. Because race is not something that the play, that the poem, it, it does bring it, it up, do, it but it doesn't, it it's, it's not, it's, it's funny how both musicals went more directly at, like mm-hmm. Dolores is the big character. Yes. Who in the poem she's described as. Watch Dolores, dark, tall, slim, wrapped in a Spanish shawl with a Spanish comb making a flare of crimson against her smooth black hair. A singer without a voice, but she rolled in a Rolls Royce. She made herself up and out to be of Spanish aristocracy. As a matter of fact, if one only knew, she was somewhat Negro and a great deal Jew. In each eye lurked what she thought was a dagger, and she walked with a slink mixed with a swagger. She was swell to sleep with. Her toenails were scarlet. She looked like and had been a Mexican harlot. But in both productions, it's played by an African-American actress. Yes. And also, I mean, there are people who read the poem and think that there is the possibility that Queenie is not white. Because Mm -hmm. there is a section in the poem where she does talk about applying makeup on and, like, becoming alabaster head to toe. So for a long, awkward while, at last she smiled a contemptuous smile at nothing. She yawned. She rose. She pulled on a pair of sheer black hose. She rouged her lips, she powdered her nose, and kept on going until at last her flesh to the knees were alabaster. Burrs watched. I mean, the the other way that the musical also, I think, deals with race is that you see it more explicitly in the character of Eddie. Yes. Um, Who, I, I find the representation of Eddie and May, like, yes, while in the lip version, it's like delightfully comic. The songs that you get from it but like you get a real sense of the pain and resentment of what it means to essentially have become who have once been like a heavyweight champion and now like is essentially a sideshow right um and the way that his race factors Show. So this is, we say, much more of an ensemble piece. We will go, there's like 40 songs in this thing, too. It's massive. And yeah. you will go 10 songs without Queenie or Burrs mm-hmm. or Black or, or Kate. You mm-hmm. will routinely cut through large swaths of the group. But they do seem to break it down into pairs. Yes. That, that, that everybody gets paired off with somebody who they interact with. Um, so you have the brothers, you have Eddie and May, you have Golden Goldberg. Uh, you, you know, you have Madeline and whoever she's talking to yes, <laughs> at, at that the time. particular moment. And everybody kind of gets into these, and Jackie and whoever he's talking to in this moment, mm-hmm. they get kind of clumped. And 
that's really efficient to me. It was yes. much more like it's like, okay, we, we're going to – because the poem does that in, yeah. in less of a way and that this just seems to lean into that idea. Yeah. Well, and I also think that's very indicative of Michael John Lacuse and the type mm-hmm. of songs that he writes because he writes – and again, I think I read this in The Times, somebody describing his music um, as being melodic but not necessarily tuneful. Uh yeah, but I also th- but when I think about his songs and I think about the songs in his you know body of work that are really resonant for me is I think that he writes songs that are longer than like a conventional musical theater song, mm-hmm. but it allows characters to express more of themselves than perhaps they would, and it feel like it delves into the nuance and complexities of those individual characters. Um, they are like each one is like a mini narrative. Um, and I think that you see that when we get to the kind of like the promenade of guests at the party is that everybody has their individual moment. You meet everybody individually. You meet Jackie, you meet Dolores, you meet Eddie and May, you meet Golden Goldberg. Um, and when you meet them, you also get like immediately get a sense of all of these like festering resentments and tensions and these secrets that are going to come out like right away like the second all these people get alcohol in them it's like mm-hmm. you know you're like everybody at this party is going to like sleep with somebody they did not come with right. and like definitely someone's gonna die yeah <laughs> like you there is no doubt once you get to the <laughs> end of that um that this is all gonna very quickly devolve into absolute chaos because these people are just like simmering with like yeah. intense rage there's this the, the funny it's funny we said in the, in the lipa version they had introduced all the characters in kind of a rush in mm-hmm. one song and this show takes 12 songs to yes. introduce each background character basically and that doesn't mm-hmm. include kate uh no. or dolores does it um, yes it does yes, she's it does. the finale yeah. of that um as she should be. As she should be. Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. Yes. Delight she it, is. Eartha Kitt in this show <laughs> is a funny like so this show has stars. Yeah. Which the the Lippa did not at the time I say they were mm-hmm. stars on the rise. This is Tony Collette who's a film, very famous film actress at that point, making her mm-hmm. Broadway debut. Mm-hmm. This is Mandy Patinkin. Like, doing, doing Mandy. Doing like, Mandy. peak Mandy. This is, this is, this is peak Mandy, 2000s, <laughs> because I think right after this is when he put, let me look, make sure I'm right about this, but like, to me, peak Mandy is... I mean, he, no, when I say peak Mandy, I mean, like, the man has never been more manic well, this is than the thing. he is. This is coming <laughs> off of, recording. so two years after, before this show, he sang, he produced his album Mama Lotion, where mm-hmm. he translated uh, Broadway, but also American standards into mm-hmm. Yiddish and right. performed them. And that is what led to, and I'll play it here, oh, um, Forbidden Broadway <laughs> to take a swing <laughs> at Mandy with the song, their parody of uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious entitled Super Frantic Hyperactive Self-Indulgent Mandy. Hyperactive, self-indulgent Mandy When I get hysterical, the critics think I'm dandy When they cast a lunatic, I always come in handy Super frantic, hyperactive, self-indulgent Mandy Because I'm such an oddity, my mainstream days are through And since I left Chicago, hope there's nothing much to 
do. And so I built a repertoire to please a Yiddish fan. So Broadway, won't you welcome back your mama lotion man? Super frantic, hyperactive, self-indulgent Mandy. Am I under medication, oversexed or randy? Pass around the matzo balls and Manischewitz brandy. Super frantic, hyperactive, self-indulgent Mandy. There is a point in his career where he he was doing a lot. It seemed like he was, he was working a lot. a lot, but but never for a long stretch of time. So he did the album. I remember there was a tour. Then he did this. Well, and the thing about this, too, is that, you know, this only ran for, like, 68 performances. Right. And he missed half of them. Well, that's... <laughs> he yeah. wasn't even in it for half the time. I do, yeah. I mean, he, he is famously somebody who doesn't stay in shows very yeah. long that he does. He talked about how... Like, I read an interview once with Terrence Mann where he said he does a show for a year, if it runs that long. Mm-hmm. He does a show for a year, and then that's it. He doesn't, if it's going to run longer, he's not going to stay with it. No matter what the show is, he does it for a year, and then mm-hmm. he moves on. And very few shows run a year, so that's not a hard thing to live up to. Mandy, I read an interview with him where he was doing Secret Garden, and he was having so much fun, he decided to stay for like nine months instead of six or something. Mm-hmm. Like, it was a very, and I remember thinking, like, I get it. You don't want to get stuck in a part. At yeah. the same time, like... You know, you're kind of only it feels like you're dropping in, like you're lending your star quality, you're doing your thing, and then you're then you're leaving, you're leaving. And but even now, I think it feels very standard to even like it doesn't matter if you're Josh Groban, you're going to do your year, you're going to get yeah, like your your nine month to year contract, right? Um, and of course, Mandy famously was supposed to do Natasha and Pierre, Uh, but that's a whole other podcast, whole other story, whole other thing. Uh, yeah, it's a, this is, and, and we say Eartha Kitt returning to Broadway after like three decades. What like a glorious tigress she is in the show. <laughs> like You will not mistake her when she appears. I was a little you know, afraid. I'm like, I wonder if I'll be able to find her. You find her. When you look around the room, look, uh, tell me what you see. Imitations of imitations. I invented myself. I'm a creature who sacrificed love for her art. These smoldering lips. Do you know what it's like to kiss such smoldering lips? Would you like to find out? Oh, you can find her. And she also makes, like, you know, one of the interesting things about this cast recording is that it also has a lot more dialogue than, and it also delves a little bit more, which makes me curious because, again, I like, I've never read the book. So it makes me wonder how much isn't on this cast recording because it feels like. Awfully it's complete. a ton. Yeah. It's I wonder if they just trimmed because it is one disc, but it's four, like 28, 30 28 songs. songs. And they're songs. I wonder if there's yeah. trims. I, I, yeah. I don't know. But what she I was makes, really. She makes some of that dialogue that is like completely ridiculous when you read it on the page like work. Oh, like, what's the, the one? <laughs> Little girl, don't you understand? The second you think you know it all, life goes and takes a big bite out of your ass. And I've got the scars to prove it. Like, come the <laughs> On. But like she makes it, she makes it work. She's she a genius. She does. She's very good at what she does. <laughs> She's Eartha Kit. You you paid for Eartha Kit. Yeah. You're getting Eartha Kit. I was really struck talking about the the score, listening to it critically. By, uh, you know, I hate to use words like tuneful and hummable and all I that sort of stuff because it's nonsense. Yeah. But I was really struck by the fact that these songs aren't structured mm-hmm. like. They're not verse, chorus, verse, chorus, no. bridge, chorus, verse, you know, songs. They are, they're kind of their own thing, and especially yeah. the really short ones. But when you put three or four of them together, that's when it feels like 
these yeah. things have a structure to them. They mm-hmm. have a build and a move, and, a, and that's really complicated. I mean, that's a hard thing to do. I don't know that I would like like to pop them in yeah. every now and again, but it is an interesting compositional effort. It feels very operatic more than, than music theater. And yeah. I think that's true of him as well. Like mm-hmm. that seems to be the type of storytelling that he is attracted to. But if you'd asked me like comparing the two again, which one of these is a sing through? I would have said it was this one. I would have yeah. said this one has less of a book than yeah, the Lippa well, version, I, yeah. but apparently not. I mean, apparently mm. Lip is a sing through and this actually has tiny scenes, yeah. but has scenes in it. And mm. it, it, it's odd to me that this is not a sing through because yeah. it feels it feels very natural that it would be. I feel like I'm I because what I feel like is missing are recitative and like yeah. tiny dialogue moments that are sung, mm-hmm. bri- maybe quick reprise bridges. You know that's that's what feels missing to me. Not yeah. scenes. Like I don't know not where scenes. would you put the scenes. Even where would in you this? put them? And I also think that the music, because he is a composer who's always his work is always grounded in history. Mm-hmm. Um, the score for this is a real like really interesting pastiche of vaudeville and jazz yeah um that it does so much of that like scenery setting yeah. for me um this show it, lives on its jazz it, I mean, it absolutely really, lives really on its really jazz does. and i think that in many ways i think that it captures that spirit of the poem of in that it feels like a little bit more atmospheric it feels like there's this like sprawling group of people with no like real center to it even though you're drawn you end up like there are like many like narrative threads that like either don't get resolved or you don't really care about. Right. Um, but I also think that is like a bit more true to that poem. It's this idea of walking into a party and there's a million different things happening and you can't follow everything and you like follow one track for a while and then you go to another one. That like relentless disorientation of what it feels like to walk into a party. This was more than the Lippa, I will say. I was a little bit more worried about space. <laughs> Yes. Because there's just so much going there's on. There's so much going on. And especially because and if we're gonna talk if we're gonna talk about the the vaudeville. Yeah. I think that we also need to address uh, the, know where you're going. the blackface. Yeah. Um just... so and which is, you know, when you listen that is a that is a detail that eluded me upon my first, you know, several listens mm-hmm. of this. And it's not something that you know unless you look at the actual book of lyrics that when the first time you have the opening number queenie was a blonde which i think is one of the best opening numbers one of my Mm. favorite opening numbers of a song um and then you re then you immediately go into marie is tricky which is an al jolson nightmare number performed by burrs who immediately comes out and is in blackface and that is how you were introduced to the character right And he performs this song and then he goes away and you go into the scene with Queenie and Burrs. And then again, at the end of the musical, when right. Burrs comes in to confront Queenie and Black to essentially like kill Black, he is wearing blackface again. So, 
And, you know, that was actually like something when I was revisiting these things that I was thinking, I'm like, why doesn't the Lockheed one get done a lot? I'm like, oh, that's why. Because nobody wants to touch it. And rightly so. And again, I think, and this is why when I was thinking about this, and I think that if there had just been white people behind the creation of this musical, I would be more immediately critical and dismissive of it as used as a device. But because George C. Wolfe is involved and because he is an artist of color, because he is somebody who is like a very provocative artist and very interested in like racial identity, it does make me question like what is it doing there and what is its function and what is the purpose that it's serving? And I don't know. I don't know either. I I do not know why it's there aside from just like my experience of listening to it on the cast recording is that, oh, this is like... uh, Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I I went back. So it made me... I will say, I mean, I listened to this, obviously, when I got it. I don't know that I'd listened to it in a long time. I put it in. Here comes Mandy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, I think it's made, like, I don't know if it's worse because Mandy's so extreme. Yeah. But it might be better because it's so grotesque. I don't In any event, he starts doing that voice. And I immediately, like, I just, I died. It's a problem. I, I curled up into a little tiny ball in my car. And it was... And then, but like you say, I remembered, okay, George C. Wolfe directed this and he wrote the book. So it's here for a reason. And what it made me do was go back to the poem. And I went, all mm-hmm. right, is there anything in the poem that indicates that, oh no, it's actually black. He, he's that yeah. kind of clown. The word minstrel doesn't pop up in the Mm-mm. poem at all. No. He's a clown in yeah. the poem. Like a, a pretty, it, what seems like a very traditional and specifically, I get the vibe, though I don't think it's specifically mentioned by name, family clown. Like he is a, he make he can make anybody laugh is kind of the bit in the poem. Mm-hmm. And I think that's there on purpose to contrast the fact that he's a psychopath. Like there's this, he's, his outward performance persona is friendly and funny and yes. benign. Mm-hmm. And his inner, inner self is dangerous and deadly yes. and unhinged. And in this version... His outward performance is grotesque mm-hmm. and horrifying, and his inner persona seems like he feels, in this version to me, more than menacing. He feels henpecked. He feels hmm. like Queenie has a power over him. And this happens in the poem, too, yeah. where he'll blurt things out and then she'll make him pay for it. And the poem leans into that. And like there's this reoccurring theme in the musical, in this musical, of her calling for more ice to sort of show that that's her control. Because she does it hmm. to Burrs at the beginning a couple times. And then she does it to Black later. She makes yeah. him get her ice. There's this sort of control thing she's got going See, on. I, I had a very different take on Queenie and Burrs because – and their and their dynamic. Mm-hmm. And I think it, this mostly has to do with casting is that there is an almost 20-year age difference between yeah. Mandy Patinkin and Tony Collette, whereas with Julia Murney and Brian Darcy James, they're basically ostensibly the same age. Ostensibly the same age. Osten- yeah. Ostensibly mm-hmm. the same age. That because I know that of that, that's my experience, that like I immediately saw Bur- and experienced Burrs as a f- much more predatory human. Um, and Queenie is more vulnerable because I automatically have an understanding of that power imbalance in their relationship. Mm-hmm. Because you also don't really get a lot of context for why they're together, their initial yeah. attraction to each other, what keeps them together. And in part, I see that as, or like I read into it and as that like he preyed upon her as like an older man. 
mm-hmm. and that she is now in this situation that she got into as like a very young woman that she doesn't quite know how to extricate herself from. And she does throw the party in this one as self-defense. Yes. It is this moment of, because I think in the Lippa version, in the poem, it's her idea. Mm-hmm. In the Lippa version, I think it's Burr's idea. No, it's hers. Is too. it her idea? Okay, yeah. so then in she this, it. and it is her idea in but, this as well. Yeah. Um, this one hap- This one occurs much sooner after she like threatens to kill him, like whips out a yeah, knife. They get into a serious like what just ha- what happens serious, in the poem. They get yeah. into a very serious physical confrontation and then decide they're going to throw a par- like they need to release, so they're going to throw a party. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, it yeah, and then they throw a party. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's that's a very good point and one that did not occur to me is mm-hmm. that I did obviously was aware of the fact that there was the age difference, but that is such a common trope in yeah. performance that like, you know, your leading man can be 50 and of but course. your leading actress can't yeah. be over 25. Um, but and, yeah. Yeah. And also to go back to the to the issue of the um, him as a using blackface as a clown. Yeah, I actually went because I was so curious because again, and like, I feel like I can't make a judgment on it because I don't feel like I have all the information. Yeah, I feel like I've um, seen it. And I also think that, like, as a white person, my experience of feeling uncomfortable about blackface, pale. Oh, like certainly. you can't even compare it to like the trauma that like a person of color feels. Yeah, yeah. Having that experience. Um. So I went back and I was actually like reading reviews okay. because I was curious to know like how it was accepted critically, and like even seventeen years ago, like the reviews barely address it. And like Ben Brantley acknowledges in the review that it's like he performs in blackface, but it's like that has nothing to do with the plot, but then like moves on. Yeah. And it's all and it, I'm just like, no, but like I like nobody was really interested in interrogating why it was there. Which just makes me frustrated about like the state of critical diversity both now and then. I there's there was an event that occurred that I don't know if you're aware of or not. Hmm. Let me see when this was exactly. Okay. So in 1993, mm-hmm. uh, Ted Danson, uh, currently of The Good Place, was dating Whoopi Goldberg. Mm-hmm. And they came to a Hollywood party and he wore blackface. Jeez. I did not know that. Okay. Yeah. This was a uh, big deal, mm-hmm. uh, as you would imagine. Um, but I remember it spark in my intellectual development, sparking a turning point of me being like, I didn't know a lot about blackface at 13. I knew mm-hmm. that wasn't okay. And it didn't yeah. matter that she, he was with Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. when he did it. it. It just, there was something very disgusting about yeah. it. And no amount of political commentary that you're intending. To me, it is, blackface is is on the same level as like a swastika yeah. In the sense that I don't care what you're doing with that sim- mm-hmm. symbology, it is ugly. It has no, yeah. you And know. unless you're like really, like I'm thinking about the plays that Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, mm-hmm. who uses blackface in his plays, but his plays are also these very provocative examinations of race and identity. And he is also specifically interrogating the history of theater and of blackness in America. Mm-hmm. And using that and being very inventive with form. Well, and Susan Lori Parks does. And Susan yeah, Lori Mark, a Parks. Lot of um, and the same thing. Doing, being very deliberate and mindful of how and effective and how he and how he uses that. Um, that is not what's happening here. And it and it feels like it's very like it's, yeah. I, I don't know how it feels. I mean, what it feels like to me, if the if the people involved in it were not such intelligent dramatists, what I would say is it feels mm-hmm. like they're trying to make you believe Burr's a bad guy without doing anything. Yeah. Because he wears blackface. Mm-hmm. And I don't, but like it's George C. Wolf and Michael John Lacuse. So I don't, yeah. that feels 
wrong to me. It feels like there's another point trying to be made here. Yes. And I just, since and we didn't har- see it, I no, don't know it's, what it it's is. It's also hard to pick up on it just from listening, listening to it yeah. and not having read it. Um, it's yeah, uh, it's gross. But it's some, but it, I know it's completely <laughs> gross. But it's something that like I did not. That was never my experience of it because again, I was just like having like an oral experience of it. Yeah, um, and that's all we have. And I just I just googled Mandy Patinkin blackface and got no results. So there's not even Ugh. like pictures of it to to even get. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah, I know. Like there's, I, I guess there is probably a way they could put him in blackface that would make you go, "This is." weird like intentionally weird blackface yeah. but it it is now one of the reasons to do it is it does very firmly root the show in its time period yes which is not again something that lacusa does the lipa does not do as much yeah. and it is and but I, so it's not in the poem like it's a weird add-on it's clearly yeah. intentional and i don't get it yeah yeah mm-hmm. and it's mandy i think that makes it worse i mean i say yeah. as one of the, like the Biggest Mandy Patinkin fan, certain maybe in this room, uh, but in, like, <laughs> but in but a huge I'm a huge fan of his work and and everything he does, and I love that he makes bold choices. Mm-hmm. That feels it's a bridge too far for mm-hmm. me. It just is like yeah. there's something about him doing that voice that feels wrong. Yeah, it just feels inherently wrong to me. And I also just think that he brings such a manic energy to it anyway that it often feels like. At some point, you're not just commenting. You are actually, like, perpetuating racial stereotypes by using it. And I think that in some ways that it does. I think that it perpetuates stereotypes more than it really offers commentary on their inclusion. There is an interesting fact to bring it back with the fact that black in, though this is not explicitly mentioned in the poem, black in both productions is Mm -hmm. African-American. And there is something, there's something there like and the, and the but cast, i don't know yeah this cast is also very diverse is, is very diverse yes um and part of that is because one of the things that george c wolf has been on the record as saying is that he was very interested in exploring the like collaborative energy that was happening in the 1920s between black people and white people and how there were these blurred boundaries between what was uptown what was downtown right um that he was very interested in the cultural shifts that were happening um, and he wanted to examine all of them and how they would collide at an event like this. Well, and there's a, there's a whole song about it. I mean, yeah. Uptown is... is Uptown, a, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is a great song. Black folks are sounding more like white folks who are sounding more like black folks in every way. Martha Graham and E.B. White got wet with Ethel Waters while Langston Hughes pretends he's one of Mrs. Astor's daughters. Ha! Uptown is looking more like downtown which is looking more like uptown every day. It's also, yeah, like you say, there is also this running concept the whole time of like everyone's trying to get out of where they are mm-hmm. and move up, uptown, up, move uptown, or everyone's trying to convince themselves that the choices that they've made are the right ones. Right. But there's a lot of like the brothers are trying to go uptown. Mm-hmm. So they try to line on to Golden Goldberg, who are also trying to go, go uptown. uptown. Dolores Jack- is going to hold on to Golden Goldberg yes. and sort of makes them She's a, yeah. <laughs> take take her with them, mm-hmm. even though it's not clear that that's where they're going. <laughs> <laughs> and Burrs does too. Burrs gets obsessed with the idea in this yeah. that he's going uptown with the brothers, is it? Or is it yes. the... Yeah. Because so. he joins into uptown. And then you part. also have like Jackie Bonbinvant, who's like has decided to abandon his own uptown life to right. one that like to come down his own predilections and his yeah, that own, song like, i mean yeah. uptown is looking more like downtown which is more like uptown yeah. every day is it is a kind of 
thematic statement um, yes. in this show. And one of the few songs that you would say, like you, like you say, you walk away whistling. It's got because because it's so repetitive, mm-hmm. and is also an intentionally vaudeville. Yes. Number, because it's a number from their show, yes, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. They perform a lot. The Brothers Darmano are like are essentially the party's entertainment. You yeah. hear from them many, many times throughout the show. And then one of them sleeps with Jackie at one point? Yeah, right. in the bathroom. In the I bathroom. think in the bathroom. Well, there's only three rooms. I mean, if you're going to, like, and nobody, they're not going to do it in the living room, I guess. Yeah. So the bedroom is probably occupied. Mm-hmm. The coats or whatever. Um, <laughs> yeah, what, what time of year does this take place in? Is this summer? Time of year? I, yeah, Why do oh, I feel like it's the summer? I'm not sure. I've always imagined people in lots of like really glamorous co- fur coats. He had so. first seen her two nights ago in the chorus of a summer musical show. Yes. So there we go. There we go. I don't remember. I don't know where I, I just, I word searched summer <laughs> in the poem and there we got it. It, it feels hot to me. Is the thing yes. of like, it feels like this, it feels like the kind of party where all the windows are open and all exactly. the doors are open. Well, and actually, and that also applies to the, um, to the poem because throughout the poem, there is this neighbor who is like threatening to call right, the Right, to call the them. police. Yeah. Um, that is not recurring in this version, but does happen in the previous. It does in happen Lippa. in the Lippa yes, version. Yeah. Is that you do have they this have, an with the they have an interaction with the They have an interaction. But here, this world feels much more insular. Yes. You don't really get any hint of the outside world. It's like you do get, you understand the world outside. You understand what's we going see on. It. You un- and you see it. Yeah. But for some, it feels like more very focused on this like shifting group of people. Well, I think because we focus on the group, we yes. don't focus on the love story as much. Because there isn't, a, because there well, isn't right. a love story. Well, right, there isn't story. a love story, yeah. And that's one of the things that I also think this is tapping into some of that cynicism within the within the poem is that, I mean, look, I never want to see another narrative where, like, a woman can only grow and change thanks to the attention of a man. Yeah. Like, that mm-hmm. and there is definitely an aspect of this where it's like black comes in and is a catalyst for that change in Queenie but she openly acknowledges in the Lacusa one that it's like this isn't love like I don't quite know what this is but this isn't like nobody has and black is much more of a cipher in this version yeah I was gonna too. say he's a con man almost. he's a con man yeah and he's much more slick and I think that he shows up and it's my favorite song in the whole show is people like us, because I also think it's a culmination of many of the themes in this play of excess. But I also think that it really starts probing this idea of like the various ways that we, the various ways that we try to assuage our own loneliness and also this intense desire to belong Mm -hmm. and to feel like alone, even in a crowded space. And how do you combat that in the various ways? And I think this party shows that like people adopt all sorts of vices because they're all just like terrified of who they really are at their core. We weren't given much and we don't expect much Slip by through the cracks We'll never be famous So who's gonna care? Nobody needs us And everyone's had us We're here but not here We'll be there but not there And where Where do we belong? We only have ourselves Where This is a show About people who lie to themselves Yes And throughout the course of the show Those lies are brought to yes. bear it's very in that i mean I, I use this quote a lot but is the the 
the simplistic version that David Mamet once said that, that all drama is based on a lie and once the lie is exposed, the drama is over. Mm-hmm. This really follows that line yeah. of that you meet all these characters who are lying to themselves and each other mm-hmm. and then those lies are disassembled. Yes. And then the world is sort of, you also get, I mean, you get in this but with songs like, I, I think on the CD it's called Where Are My Pants? But it, it, in the uh, <laughs> in the show, it's it, it's like it's the moving, moving uptown up blues. blues. Yeah. yeah. And it's Thanks. this, there, there is a, there's a post-mortem on the orgy. Yes. An extended be- post-mortem. Which begins after, in the song called After Midnight Dies. Mm-hmm. The orgy kind of ends in this with Jackie's rape of um, Nadine, Nadine mm-hmm. um, in Moore. And that kind of brings, that v- total violation yes. brings to bear, uh, I think in a really clever way. Like Eddie and May's relationship hits a peak when Eddie goes to save Nadine. Mm-hmm. And it gets crazy i mean it's yeah. just absolutely gets, gets absolutely crazy and mm-hmm. these people who have had this like experience that they weren't really prepared for now have to confront this thing that they all agree is ugly i mean there's yes. this moment of everyone's agreeing this is ugly things happen and the party has been basically ruined yes by jackie and now everybody has to deal with that so this yes. this show lives in that post orgy pre-murder moment mm-hmm. for a much longer period much, of much time longer. well and you also get eartha kid Once again, doing her 11 o'clock number when it ends. ends. I can tell you that nobody lasts forever. I've been there and there and there and seen enough. So you better hope to Jesus or Mohammed or whatever that you've got. Which is like, like Eartha Kitt prowling around stage with her like gravelly purr singing about like loss and decay and regrets. And it's like, just inject that directly into my veins. <laughs> it's, it's, so, it's so great. Um, and again, you know, I think it's one of the few songs and it's like, do we really need this? And it's like, yes, yes, we do. You do in this um, version. You do I mean, need it. Eartha, it's funny what Dolores is in this show, that yeah. she is sort of the future. She's the future, but she also serves as a, she provides, especially when you're listening to the cast recording, is that this is another thing. You get far more context about Burr's abusive history with women. Which you get in the poem just sort of in narrative course. Yes. It's just sort of told to you. And you also see like Kate and Dolores functioning much more, and again, this has to do with like the women who are playing them, which is Eartha Kitt and also like the brilliant Tanya Pinkins. Um, they are offering information and guidance to Queenie as well. Mm. Um, as she does this assessment of what her life has become um, and how like I and again like I'm gonna George Seawolf said this too that like one of the things that he really liked about this show and I think one of the things that I or one of the ideas in the poem that he was really drawn to and one that I am as well is this idea that like you cultivate these weapons to survive mm-hmm. and at some point you realize that they have hindered your ability to grow and change mm. um, and I think that that is the that is the journey that Queenie goes on throughout this show that like yes a a person a a man entering her space is the catalyst for that but it's something that she experiences on her own and she ends the show alone right Um, with the I mean the the show this show ends with four reprises yes and (laughs) twisted reprises all like Mm -hmm. that now these songs are turned back on their head to be to 
taken out of their kind of performative context and brought into a real world context and the character's development through that with songs yeah. like How Many Women in the World and This Is What It Is mm-hmm. have this now second meaning because of all that we've seen and all yes. we've experienced. Mm-hmm. The The funny thing to me is is how what's the right adjective because the the word that i was about to use was basic but there's not the right Mm -hmm. word or maybe it is what i mean by that is this this feels to me much more like even though the score is is not this this plot feels a lot more a b c d it's like this then this but Mm -hmm. this so this move so like you have when queenie is at her apex of hedonism at the party dolores comes in to throw some cold water on the fact that like no no your boyfriend's killed people and will kill you if you don't like do something Mm -hmm. and she kind of brushes her off you also have songs like best friend Mm -hmm. which highlight again queenie and kate's frenemy relationship and is a great song but there's and songs like taboo i mean you have like these moments of of clear music theater beats just play beats being hit where it's like now we're at this part in the plot so this twist has to be revealed Mm -hmm. and now we're at this part so this twist has to be revealed which in the Lippa recording feels like everything's much more like the poem to me, just sort of flowing towards this inevitable violent yes. conclusion. This feels a lot more like there's a reckoning coming. Like well, there because is a, you also yeah. know, and I think that you know far more earlier this version, that things are violent. These are this is going to end in disaster. I think you know that from the very start. Like in but a if, way, in a way yeah. that you know that about the, but you also have these like kernels of like I don't even want to say hope, but it's just like oh these people are passionate, they care about each other in the Lipa version. And here you're like oh no, yeah, like these people that like, you get like a single ounce of gin in them, and it's all coming out because the, those are all very surface. I mean the lies yes. are right in front, and they don't have yes. these sort of emotional intelligence to handle. No, and yeah. they're not even like they're barely concealing all of that. Oh, yeah. Um, Very bad. And it doesn't really feel like there's anything. You never feel that I, there's not one time where you're just like, oh, maybe she should stay with Burrs. Like, look at that. Like, oh, they have, certainly they not. Have a very compl- you never feel that they have this, like, deep, complicated history at all. Right. You're just like, how is this woman going to extricate herself from this horrible, violent, abusive well, situation? One thing I will say to th- that bothered me about this is I did not in any way understand why Burrs and Queenie were together. Except yeah. what you said makes sense. Like, is mm-hmm. the only thing that makes sense to me is that yeah. she's sort of prisoner of this older man because she, for whatever reason, because it's the yeah. 20s and she's a single woman and she's in entertainment and that's hard. Yeah. But there's also a lot more of like, like in in uh the Kate, the Kate and Black relationship has this much more, like that Black has no money and Kate has yeah. money mm-hmm. is very odd to me in this sort of yeah. adaptation though like like she's a, Kate's very self aware of who she is who she's with and what's going on Absolutely. which is great. In the Lippa version, though, she's much more like I think it's the same way, but it's much sadder, more much delusional. more sadder, and she also has a much more drug fueled. Um, Drug fueled, but her interest in burrs feels more legitimate in mm-hmm. the Lipa version. Yeah. That that one is like, we've known each other for a long time and we've never gotten together. Why is that? Right. Like, there's something else going on there. And again, you need that because he has a m- much more clear, like, love quadrangle happening here. Right. But in this one, that's not the case at all. Like, I think at some point, like, I think during Black as a Moocher, like, I believe in the stage directions that says that she's, like, straddling burrs. But, like, you don't have that same. But that just sort of feels like a consequence of, like, everyone's having sex now. Right. Rather than, like, this is a real um But she's using it approach. to get to burrs. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I do like the moment that Kate turns. What does he? What does Black call it when he sings it with Queenie? If I was running, it's not game on you. Um, oh, the mooch is that what yeah, he calls it? The mooch. He's running the mooch on her. I like the way that Kate knows. His moves oh, later when everything. he flip when she flips it on him and yeah. as he she runs his game back at him is mm-hmm. a really interesting like, yeah. interesting moment. Black is really a, like in in the lip of recording. I got the sense that he was the one who was he had money mm-hmm. or at least I mean because he, he pays for the cab. At he the pays beginning. for the cab and yeah. also in the lip of version he immediately sees Queenie and he's like oh this poor broken child right. like you know it's like he's, but he's looks at her and he has like this very like. He he immediately like sees her vulnerability as something that is attractive. Isn't this whereas the, is here? The, right. I feel like he sees her vulnerability, and you're not sure if he's running a game on her. Or not. Is Lacuse is the one where he describes her though as virginal? No, that's the first. That's one. the lip version. Okay. Version. Okay. That makes then yes. Everything it took me a second. I was like, sense. I was like, I'm trying to like put it to the. It's the problem with like, listening. To, I was yeah. listening to them both yesterday, and I yeah. parts of it are muddled because mm-hmm. it is the same story, uh, and the same characters. <laughs> um. I'm actually shocked I've kept them as straight as I have. In no, this, I haven't. In well, there's also like when you have the differences and the nuances between both the poem and the two musicals, it's like not one is right. the same. Yeah. I wanted to, though, now that we're here, mm-hmm. talk about this thing that you said that you felt the Lippa version felt more Broadway to you yes. than the Lachusa version. And I disagree. Interesting. I disagree mainly, not because of score. I think your score uh-huh. observation is correct. And also two act structure. Like there's a lot about Lippa that is more commonly theatrical. Mm-hmm. But it is the this feels a lot more melodramatic to me hmm. than the Lipper version does, in the fact that it has very concrete story beats yeah. to it, even though it is much more of an ensemble piece. And that mm-hmm. is a decision I think that is made to keep the story moving. Like yeah. there, you have if you're going to focus on a 15 person ensemble, mm-hmm. every now and again you have to let the audience know that like two hours has gone by or yeah. something's happened. And so things need to change and grow. And that's kind of how they use the Burr's Queenie relationship as this like clock on the mm-hmm. evening. Like, oh, where are we in this like, this thing that you know is going to go bad? Yeah. Where where are we? Oh, we're here. Okay. <laughs> and it really stood out to me in that scene where Dolores gives Queenie Burr's backstory. Mm-hmm. It just felt really ham-fisted for yeah. lack of a better word well and to me. part of it is they're also they also use the it's eartha kid and they also use a line from the poem yeah and and, and like sometimes that is effective but in this case i think that the the rhyming nature of it made it feel like not like the sort of like like nightmare nursery rhyme they wanted to sound but it right. made it read as like deeply unauthentic. they also don't explain why he killed her right no. which is in the poem it's because she got pregnant Yes, but and here he, they're just like he had a beautiful, he had a young blonde, beautiful and blonde, just like you. Beat her with the heel of his shoe till her lips turn blue, and you're just right. like, I under, yeah, it, yeah. It it's not. It's. It, it, I mean, I get it. it. It it kind of has this like. There is. It gives teeth to his bluster. I mean, mm-hmm. he's a lot. Burr's is a lot of bluster with no. You know, you, you kind of yeah. wonder. He's a lot of bark with no bite, and it gives you that piece of information that no, no, he's mm-hmm. he's done it before. He'll probably do it again, but without a reason. It, yeah. it feels very – it just feels very random. It feels like a yeah. piece of information I'm supposed to get to make me go, ooh. Yeah. And also Queenie's dismissiveness of it is obviously meant to make me go, oh, no, Queenie, yeah. watch out, you know. We've so, also already established that he is a violent 
human being like early on in the play and so like here yeah. so there is some and i agree with you like hearing again that like he beat his previous girlfriend and killed her you're just like i'm not necessarily surprised by that given like right. by the previous information by the actual scenes that i've seen but if it was like again like having more reasoning as to why he did that is what i think makes it actually horrifying yeah um yeah it's it's a weird it, yeah that, that's what i'm saying like it it, it has this odd this very traditional structure to it, which I think is again on purpose to allow it to go in these bizarre directions mm-hmm. so that the audience doesn't get lost. But I feel that those moments feel very out of place in mm-hmm. this this conceptually wants to be more amorphous, more mood. Yeah. And I feel like if you reduced Queenie and Burrs and Black and Kate a little more to being more part of the group. Yeah. I would be having a better time hmm. because they have the worst problem. I mean, I feel like yes. they naturally move to the top because not only they're the hosts, so they're kind of the natural focus. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, Gold and Goldberg are having a disagreement about their name. Yeah. Whatever. You know, and and the, the, the brothers have a very complicated relationship, which is then made more complicated by Jackie. Jackie is this great catalyst wandering through the party, ruining mm-hmm. everybody's life. Um, you know, Madeline... Madeline True has all her stuff going on. Eddie and May have their things going on. Yeah, Eddie, but, the Eddie and May relationship is like deeply interesting to me. In yes, this one. in this one, it's um, much more, much more complicated and much deeper. You just get a sense of the sacrifices that both of them have had to make for right. each other, um, and that they felt compelled to make. I mean, yes. it's this interesting idea of like I don't get the sense that May asked Eddie to quit boxing. Yeah, he just has this line of like, "Well, of course I can't box anymore now that I'm married," and she has yeah. this thing of like, "Well, I can't perform anymore now that I'm married." And it's this societal yes. pressure more than it's like they ever said to each other, mm-hmm. well, you obviously have to quit boxing and you have to quit theater. Like yeah. it's not it, – mm-hmm. yeah. And he's so humiliated. So humiliated. So as being reduced to this sort of vaudeville sideshow, mm-hmm. the chump, yeah. uh, as And she's she says. deeply resentful of his womanizing too. Right. Of like his – of the attention that that receives. Mm-hmm. That he uses Which it's clear to like me a, that he goes – yeah, he uses it – as because a compensating he, mechanism absolutely. to his lost glory. Because obviously the thing he loves the most, he sings about this, is being in the ring mm-hmm. and being the champ. Like that's what he loves. And yeah. he's chasing that feeling and he's yeah. never going to have it again. And mm-hmm. yeah, that is an int- – I mean, and it's also – I like how broken they are on both ends. Yes. I love relationships that are broken <laughs> out of silence more than out of active – you know, the sort of active aggression, like these two people, if they would just have sat down and talked to each other. Exactly. Then maybe they wouldn't have been together. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe they wouldn't have been Or maybe they would have been fine. Like maybe he would have been like, no, I want to keep boxing and you want to keep dancing. And I'm, is that cool? Okay, great. And then they would have, I don't know if that marriage would have lasted, but they would have least have like, it would have broken up because they were both still Mm -hmm. doing what they loved. And now like it's going to break up and neither of them is doing what they loved, (laughs) which is, you know, tragedy. And that's good. Um, And you also get a lot more of Nadine. In this yes. show, she's got who I think is I don't know if they explicitly say she's fourteen, but she's clearly she's much definitely younger. A teen. Yeah, she's May's than little sister else. from Poughkeepsie, right? Um, and you desperate to be in desperate, New York. but she also like idolizes Queenie, yes, um, and is also like trying to play the part at the party as well, yeah, um, but doesn't quite realize what she's getting into. Well, she runs in and asks for a drink. I mean, it's like the first exactly. thing she wants the is first a drink. thing, and yeah. she's almost like performing this idea of what she thinks should happen at a party, right? Um, which then. Later on, Jackie breaks bad for her. Breaks bad for her when Jackie sort of recognizes that she is somebody that he can take advantage of. Right. Um, In a song that is really like 
that anthem to excess and it like really peaks again that it's like here like we were saying earlier it's like here is the underside here's the darkness of that hedonistic spirit um when you are constantly wanting when you are constantly looking for more others know when their cups are overfilled (laughs) others know how to say i'll take this or that or either or or neither nor little jackie can only say more dancing more shebang more party more variety more motion more pizzazz more danger more toxicity I want is oh I don't know what it is I want all I want is more 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 Here is when that all goes wrong and both shows and, have and it. not for and I and I'm not saying that on Nadine. I'm saying that for Jackie, somebody yes. who is like Nadine is clearly the he's insatiable. In this. Yes, yeah, he is. He is. He is an insatiable, self-aware, yes. insatiable nature. It's funny that both shows late in the second half go for Jackie. Mm-hmm. This was the song more in the Lippa version. The orgy sort of surrounds Jackie's last dance, yes. which is a dance number. I'd love to see it. Uh, love to see it staged. But it's interesting that Jackie, even though he's less of a th- menacing. Th- sense mm-hmm. in 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 lipa he's a lot more of a comic relief pansexual like oh isn't that funny yes anything that moves kind of guy whereas here he's just everything up right yeah. every everything he touches turns everything. it is that he is an amazing you know king midas in reverse kind mm-hmm. of situation and he seems fine with it like he seems to know yeah. that he's doing these things and he seems to love the sort of lasting and again, impression I think that's he like has his scorched earth like thing he does yeah and i think that he's able to move through that world because he is initially of a different class than most of these people mm-hmm. and i think that that's something that he carries with him that gives him a certain level of confidence that at the end of the day he's just slumming it and he knows it but what struck me about more is that everything that came after that mm-hmm. felt very anticlimactic to yes. me it is it is such a wonderfully I mean, the, not because the song is written to be the finale, nothing about that, no. but it is the height of the idea that the play is discussing, which is this mm-hmm. idea of hedonism. And Jackie pushes that hedonism the whole time. He pushes it over the line. The party reacts mm-hmm. correctly. It, it it banishes him, <laughs> you know, from yeah. its from itself. Or... And then you have to pick up with this confrontation between Burrs and Queenie and Black. And it feels very much like an afterthought. It does. It really feels like it does not, and it does not have the sort of the same like propulsive um, energy that make me happy in the lip version right. does. Um, this one actually feels like. Much more terrifying and dangerous, but not as dramatically satisfying. Because um, it's, it's much more fractured. I mean, yes. much in the way that I think it makes sense for a musical like this. Like I say, it ends with four reprises in a very intentional, like, mm-hmm. the show is out of control. So it's breaking down. It's building itself back up. It's yeah. turning itself upside down. And and because of that, you never get these actual, like, proper conclusions to any of the relationships. In the stage direction, it says that, like, after Black shoots burrs. Queenie says goodbye to everybody. Right. But you're like, oh, how exactly does that? And there's how this like, work? Yeah. great moment of like musical chaos and frenzy. And then it is all completely stripped down to her. Yeah. Um, and that's what you end on. And I think that, which is similar to the Lippa version that you end like with Queenie. I found this one that makes a little bit more sense. Um, 
and feels a little less like at least like this the last moment with Queenie feels a little less like an afterthought. Yeah. And does feel like a culmination of the of the journey that she's been on. For well, the and it is the advantage of an ensemble piece is that when you have one if you have a thing that is truly an ensemble piece, you can have a character step out of the ensemble yes. and address their own feelings. Yes. And you're doing that throughout so that it makes a lot more sense than in the Lippa version where you have, it's about the foursome. Mm -hmm. One of them dies, but still three of them are alive. And yet we're only going to get one point of view at the One point of view. And a point of view that isn't even like in the Lippa version, like grounded in anything that feels personal. It's just like, how did we all come to this? Whereas in this one, I feel like Queenie is having a very specific personal reckoning and questioning with herself Mm -hmm. um, and reflecting on how her life is going to be different now. And it feels very sobering. It does so feel so. That, yes, that is true. Those last moments feel like deeply, deeply sobering. It feels like the lights are, like the sun is on, the sun is rising, yes. the lights are on, and like mm-hmm. you can't, you can't ignore the day as much yes. as you try to party it away. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there has to be a morning after. <laughs> so let's compare and contrast. Okay. <laughs> to, 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 because you can't avoid it. No, oh, let me, let me it. wrap up by saying, so this show, this version We'll do our nitty gritty here. Um, like I say, opened four days after the um, the off Broadway production closed. After thirty six previews, which is Yikes. grip of previews, <laughs> and closed on just after the Tony Awards uh, when it didn't win Best Musical after yes. sixty eight performances, nom- and it was nominated for seven. And there was actually talk of it closing earlier, but then they got all the Tony nominations right. and they kept it open. Yeah, which is the Tony, which, which is not is uncommon. Completely understandable. Yeah, so. Here we are. <laughs> Which one do you prefer? Oh God. And okay. Um, let me ask let me ask you one question first and then we'll ask that question. Yes. Which one do you think is a more and you can define this however you want. More faithful more adaptation. More faithful adaptation of the poem. Lucky so. Okay. I think so. I think that it captures that atmospheric ensemble spirit. Um and I also think that it gives a you have an understanding of the world and something that I think that March was really interested in communicating was that was the violence and tragedy of Jazz Age New York. And I think that that is more clearly communicated in the Lacusa one. Disagree. I think Ooh. that the Lippa version is a more faithful adaptation uh, in tone hmm. to the text and in... I think okay. that the, the, the vibe I got after I read the poem of this sort of flowing descent into madness, which mm-hmm. is kind of how I felt about it, is much better represented in the Lippa version because of its structurelessness. Mm-hmm. The poem just sort of happens and flows. Yeah. And the Lippa musical uses, I think cleverly, the love story as a structure point to disguise the structure of the evening a little bit. So it hmm. flowed more. The Lacusa version, as I've said, I feel the story beats a lot harder, yeah. which the poem doesn't have. It's but, also like a relentless nightmare of a musical. Like, like in terms, yeah. well, they both are. I'm, yeah, I mean, they, they both, both they both do. Um, they both do. Now, what I really appreciate about both of them from an adaptation standpoint is they take a point of view and they stick to it. Mm-hmm. And they both of their points of view are firmly gr- rooted in the text. Yes. And that is remarkable that you can wind up with two musicals that are structurally so different from yes. the exact same piece of narrative. Like they're not both based on a painting they're, no. or like, you know, like a statue. They're based on a narrative poem mm-hmm. and they both found op- things in the text, grabbed onto them tightly and created a musical yes. out of it. Yeah. Great. So which one do you like better? Oh, God. Um, 
Or which one do you listen to more? That's if you're going to throw one in. I'm going to throw in the Lacusa one. And I'm I, know that's strange. I know that's, that's really, strange. I don't um, think it is. Did you ever, did you go on any of the message boards about which one of these shows is better? No, but it I know a, that it's like, it's like, it's a real knockdown drag out fight, isn't and it? And very clearly divided. It is yeah. a very clear, like, lip is better if you like belting and screaming and Lacuse is better <laughs> if you like an actual musical to Lacuse is better if you like uh, atonal nightmares and <sighs> lip is ver- better if you like singers or something you know what i mean like there's well, this and again it's like in no realm do i think these two should like source material aside in no realm should these two musicals constantly be like compared it's because right. they share that same source material but like they they don't live in the same world i had this thought a long time ago I'd be like you know what somebody should do somebody should stage both these shows in rep with the same mm. cast on the same set and you should just do them i mean it'd be impossible but it'd be impossible. And I also don't know. But that I don't think have, it works. It, I don't think it works because I don't think that you have. I don't think that there's one performer mm-hmm. that could play those that like the birds, the difference between both like technically. Yeah. And also in terms of just like. But types. Yeah, I wouldn't types. cast. I would you wouldn't not cast, cast the same people. I cast an older actor in the Lafusa yeah. version than I would in the Lippa. I'd yeah. cast. I think I'd cast a tall, like it's down to like type, like I'd cast a more built version in the Lippa, like a more mm-hmm. strong, a stronger looking man. And in the Lacusa, I would cast maybe a sadder looking older man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there's, I, I would cast different queenies. I would cast different Dolores's and men. Like they're, they're yeah. very different characters. But it's funny. I'm so happy that we like different ones. <laughs> I know. Well, and also like, and I don't feel the need to like validly defend my point. I'm just like, yes, I completely understand that. Because I like them both. Yeah. I mean, is the thing is like, it, it, it is a, it's a purely, I think it's more than like what you like in a musical, especially if you read the poem. I think it's yeah. what you got out of the poem. And I think you and mm-hmm. I got two very different things out of the poem. Yes. And so we want different things out of the musical version of the mm-hmm. poem. And I, that really is what I'm getting from this vibe. Um, well, I would throw on the like, Lippa version also, though, just because, like, if you're going to throw one on, like, that's got songs in it that yeah. I want to hear. And it also, like, it raises such an interesting question for me about, like, what constitutes a, su- a successful adaptation. Right. And how I don't think that there's a concrete answer to that. And there shouldn't be. And there you shouldn't should, be. You should be able to, to me, adaptation, when you translate media, yeah. the, the person doing the adaptation is going to see something in the source material yes. and then translate it. And yeah. no two adaptations should be the same if no. that's how you're working. And I also think that there's something about the exercise of looking at these that really made me reflect on the idea of like all the various forces that influence people when they're creating art. Um, and you see how those interests manifest in different ways. Like, of course, if Michael John Lacuse picked up this poem, knowing what I know about his body of work, of course he was going to do something that had a historical bent to it. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. And of course Andrew Lippo is going to pick this up and he's going to write like a bunch of like bang and pop tunes for ladies. Like right. that is like, that that's is exactly, thing. that's 100% his thing. And both of them I think have total merit. This is great, Lauren. Great. Thank you so much for this idea. Thank this you was so hilarious. much. This I have is no delightful. idea again how I'm going to cut this, but <laughs> I'm going to do it. So you are at Halverson on Twitter. And so what, what do you have any projects percolating that you can do you have any projects tell percolating? the crowd um, about? The next show that I'm dramaturging at Studio Theater is Sarah Delaps the Wolves, which I'm really excited about, which opens at the end of January. Um, as a Pulitzer finalist, it's a play about a high school girls soccer team. Ooh. And in a, you know, I think there's a current like renaissance right now. Not really a renaissance, but like a resurgence of like centering 
teenage girls, the stories of teenage girls Mm -hmm. Um, and the importance of like having work that's created by women um, and stories that tell women's stories and complicated stories of the emotional interior lives of women. And I think this play does that. And I'm so excited for it. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. Thanks to Lauren Halverson for coming down and talking to me today. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. Ah!